back, everybody. You are listening to the Northern Miner Podcast, and I'm your host, Matthew Keevil. As usual, we are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do surf by yukonminingalliance.ca to check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. And this is indeed our London Calling Edition. That's right, uh, in a mere few hours I will be boarding a uh, transatlantic flight to the old country to uh, participate in our Canadian Mining Symposium. And boy, are we excited about this one. Uh, we got an absolutely fantastic docket of speakers and panelists that are going to dig into some of the most important and progressive topics facing our industry today. Um, as mentioned previously, we do have uh, Lucas Lundin, Robert Friedland, as well as uh, uh, David Garofalo from Goldcorp, Kelvin Dushinsky from Barrick. Uh, for my part, I will be moderating a panel discussion um, on strategies for excess cash, whether to entrench, acquire, repurchase, or pay out. So basically, we're talking about money. Um, so I, I am uh, moderating a panel on money. Uh, and the panelists are, are phenomenal. We have Rob McEwen, Executive Chairman of uh, McEwen Mining, uh, Ian Pierce, formerly of X2 Resources with Mick Davis, now Chairman of New Gold, uh, Patrick Anderson, who is developing uh, the gold deposit in Ireland with Delradian Resources, uh, Stephen Maloney, who is the Managing Partner and uh, Director of Consulting Deals with PwC, and Ed Sterk, um, an analyst from BMO uh, on the UK division who covers a lot of really large multinationals, including Glencore, uh, Rio Tinto, etc. Uh, so we're going to have a lot of really diverse sort of insights and to the industry from from uh, individuals who work at high levels on different parts. I mean, uh, Rob McEwen's obviously come from the entrepreneurial uh, legal side. Ian Pierce is an engineer. Patrick Anderson is a geologist. Uh, Stephen is an accountant. And Ed Sterk is a geological analyst. So it'll be interesting. Uh, it's going to be a great uh, panel. Um, but uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, some of that later. Right now, I'll move ahead with a little bit of macro. And then Leslie's going to swing by with a geology corner uh, that we recorded at uh, the Geological Survey of Canada's 175th birthday or well anniversary celebration i guess it is a birthday but i don't know if like government agencies have birthdays uh but it was a really fun event and uh we'll talk about that a little bit later uh but let's just dig into a little bit of macro right away Obviously, the big news of the day uh, internationally is France's general election. And uh, at the time of recording, which was about uh, noon on Sunday, uh, it did look like Emmanuel Macron was going to take the election at about 65.5% of the popular vote over Marine Le Pen, who is the head of the National Front. Uh, So uh, Macron was uh, known as more of the globalist participatory candidate, whereas obviously Le Pen was more of the protectionist patriotism candidate. Uh, So we will not know exactly how this will impact markets, obviously until we uh, see some of the overseas markets open a little bit later today. But uh, it'll be interesting to pay attention, but this isn't too surprising. We, we have to imagine that uh, that markets had sort of factored in this result considering uh, Macron had been expected to take the election, by and large, uh, from the, most of the sources I read. Um, so let's just crack into a little bit of commodities. These are the Friday closes, uh, because I had to record this episode on Sunday uh, due to the travel. Um, but gold closed at $1,228.40 per ounce. Silver was at $16.34 per ounce, while copper was at $2.54 per pound. Meanwhile, West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil closed at $46.47 per barrel. As we had noted on the gold side, uh, the uh, yellow metals had sort of a rough go recently. Uh, it had a bad week, as, as, as mentioned. The eurozone political risks have receded, uh, and a June rate hike in the U- U.S. is looking increasingly likely. Uh, Scotiabank notes that ETFs have stayed fairly steady amidst the sell-off. Uh, it could just be speculators uh, exiting positions, but total physical gold ETFs were actually up by 59,000 ounces on Thursday. 
On the copper side, it appears that supply disruption may again be the phrase of the day. Uh, union workers at Freeport McMoran's Cerro Verde copper mine are reportedly mulling another strike uh, after the company threatened to suspend about 400 union workers for, for participating in the 21-day strike held in March. Uh, the suspensions allegedly start on May 1st and would extend until June, according to a report from Bloomberg. Uh, meanwhile, negotiations are set to start up at Glencore and Anglo-America's uh, rather complicated joint venture, Kalawasi, uh, which is another large-scale copper operation that uh, they operate alongside JX Nippon Mining and Metals in Mitsui. Uh, that's a, just another one. Uh, there's no hint that that could be particularly problematic yet, uh, but management negotiators of the union um, are set to meet on May 5th as part of the collective negotiation process. So just another one to keep your uh, your eyes on. Uh, another CU, uh, copper supply uh, a story, obviously, is Grasberg and Freeport in Indonesia. Uh, this uh, recently reported Reported, the Indonesian government expects to resolve contract discussions with Freeport uh, in the next month or two. Uh, the Jakarta Post reported um, Secretary General of the uh, Energy Ministry in Indonesia. Um, separately, uh, Compass reported that Freeport CEO Richard Ackerton is confident both parties can reach a win-win agreement and that the company prefers not to go to arbitration. And finally, to wrap up a little bit on the zinc side, uh, as we've noted, zinc had been uh, pulled back a little bit over the uh, first couple of weeks of April to around near the dollar ten per pound level. Uh, it has since rebound. It was uh, trading at about one dollar and seventeen cents per pound at the time of recording. Uh, but uh, Glencore made a rather material announcement. Uh, it said uh, it has no plans to quote unquote restart its idle zinc mine capacity in Peru and Australia. Uh, its current idle assets are expected to remain on care and maintenance indefinitely. Uh, Glencore's 2017 zinc production guidance is 1.19 million tons, plus or minus around 25,000 tons. Uh, so that's always the sort of an overhang uh, in, in some conversations on zinc was that Glencore has uh, in the realm of half a billion uh, tons of uh, latent capacity it could turn online, but the uh, company came out last week and said that is not in their plans. So uh, good news for uh, some of the zinc developers and explorers out there who are hoping for that, uh, you know, uh, level about the dollar twenty plus level uh, per pound to stick around over the long run to incentivize a little bit of more investment in zinc. Um, as we noted last week, uh, the big news coming out was that South Thirty Two had taken uh, a large hundred million dollar stake in Arizona Mining and the Hermosa deposit. Um, if you want a little bit more info on that deal, uh, head over to northernbiner.com. Our senior staff writer, Trish Saywell, wrote that one up. Uh, and so if you want uh, the nuts and bolts of Cell 32's investment in Arizona, please do check out northernbiner.com. And while on the uh, subject, uh, please do consider subscribing. It's a screaming deal. Uh, and we're working on a lot of really exciting new initiatives, including more video, uh, more dated journalism. Uh, so skip on over to northernbiner.com, hit that subscribe button, and give it some thought because it's really a worthwhile investment, I think, if you're uh, a follower or investor. Uh, participant in the mining industry. But without further ado, let's crack into Leslie's Geology Corner for the week. Uh, as mentioned, we had the opportunity to visit the Geological Survey of Canada at their Vancouver offices to help them celebrate their 175th anniversary. Uh, well, there, uh, Leslie sat down with research scientist John Chapman, who's also a friend of hers, uh, to talk a little bit about some of the research protocols and uh, projects that are going on in uh, BC and the Yukon. Um, and uh, this little piece, uh, they get to chatting a little bit about uh, copper porphyries and also Rockhaven Resources Clasa deposit, which, as John explains, is sort of an abnormality in the Yukon that they're uh, trying to figure out as far as uh, modeling the deposit type. Uh, so I will uh, get right to it. Um, and uh, after the Geology Corner, I'll be back after the break just to wrap up the show.
we are here down um, with the Geological Survey of Canada in downtown Vancouver celebrating their 175th anniversary. And I'm here joined by John Chavin, a research scientist and a friend of mine. You told me earlier that you're focusing on looking at a gold mineralizing event that had occurred in the Yukon um, in the late Cretaceous. Yeah. So maybe you just want to kick off and give me a summary of like what exactly it is you're looking for and why? Okay. Um, up in the Yukon, obviously there is quite a lot of mineralization happening in the late Cretaceous. The, the casino deposit is the absolute gem in that lot. You know, a billion and something tons of fairly decent grade copper and gold. But throughout that piece of central Yukon, there's a whole suite of other deposits that come down in a, a rough arc back towards Carmax. And there are some in there that are pretty easy to explain. They look a lot like Casino and they have a lot of the same characteristics. But there are a couple that are a little bit different. And one of those is the Clasa deposit, which uh, Rockhaven Resources hold at the moment. And it's intriguing because people who have worked on it before suggest that it has affinities with something called carbonate-based metal mineralization, which is normally thought of as a Southwest Pacific um, phenomenon. And there's some in Colombia as well. And if it's true that this is akin to those, then it's the first one that's actually been described in Canada. So at the moment, we're just trying to put the groundwork in the first phase of a, a study that's going to really establish whether or not carbonate-based metal is actually something that we need to worry about in Yukon. And if it is really that sort of a model for a deposit, then we'll be in a much better place to look for other ones of a similar sort. Uh, our sniffs and hints around the Yukon that there are other little bits that seem to conform to that model. There's also some question about its timing. Um, and a whole bunch of dates come out of it, and they all come out at one date apart from two interesting numbers. And we're trying to follow those up and actually see whether or not this is the same age as Casino, or maybe slightly later. But um, that's uncertain at the moment. Um, what do you mean by like carbonate hose? There? Are you talking about like a Carlin style sort of thing? No, this is carbonate-based metal is a vein system. So it's, a, it's again, it's, it's an epithermal low-sulfidation system. But it has dominantly carbonate gang minerals. There's not much quartz in the system. So it has a, a different set of fluids involved from a standard you know, low-sulfidation epithermal. And it forms a bit deeper. You're deeper in the crust, and these things can be fairly closely tied to the porphyry center itself. So on the Clasa property, you have the Kelly and Cypress porphyries just off to the southeast. And the guys at Rockhaven and Archer Cathro have done a really good job of defining a, a pretty continuous porphyry to epithermal transition through that zone. Um, so we're fairly sure we know spatially how it relates to the porphyries, but temporally and chemically, it's not at all. Uh, clear. Right. So, so there's, there's a lot. An anomaly up there. It is an anomaly. Yeah, it looks different from quite a few of the other deposits up there, and and it's a style of mineralization that, if it is really what it says it is, it implies a suite of different things about the in environment that it was forming in. So those are going to be pretty key if we actually want to go and find some more, because if it's not the same as everything else, then we need to understand why. Wow. I guess that would have big implications if you're up there and exploring. You think yep. that you have a certain type of epithermal deposit when realistically your geological model could be completely... Yeah, like I mean, that, that's where the, the age of the thing comes in. Is We have some indications in published dates that it's casino-aged. Mm. A lot of the porphyry intrusions there seem to be the same suite as the casino deposits associated with. But there are a couple of ages that are coming out a little bit younger, and, and that needs to be explained. It's only two ages at the moment, but they're ages in significant places. So if we're all looking for casino age mineralization, but it turns out there's another suite of mineralization up there that we're not really looking for because we haven't identified it before, then that could have big implications and 
you'll look in different places, obviously. Can these deposits be of any size right now? That are Some of the economic? Southwest Pacific ones, the carbonate-based metal things like Porgyra, these are huge deposits in the Southwest Pacific. Okay. Uh, Klaus is doing pretty well. They've already got some, some fairly large numbers on the table, and they're drilling and drilling and drilling. I, don't, I haven't heard anything about their program for this year yet, but their last year's program certainly turned up some nice intercepts and some pretty high grades and, and large, uh, larger aerial footprint. Um, and it's open pretty much in, in most directions. So it, it could be that Plaza is of that ilk. It might not be. I, mean, I don't know. We, we haven't done those, those studies, but it'd be interesting to find out. Cool. So, of course, now for our listeners, and um, this deposit is different than what you see at coffee and what you see at yeah. the Klondike, because those That's are right. mountain-building, orogenic gold deposits, That's right, so yeah. not related to a porphyry, right? No, this is directly related, although at some distance from a porphyry center, yeah. Oh, okay, great. So, what's that deliverable going to look like when you, you know, wrap up all your studies? Is it going to be presented in a paper? Is it going to be There'll be, out? certainly there'll be papers. Um, Open files, you know, most of the work that we do is is put into open files and is then freely downloadable because obviously it's public information, so we try and get it out there in a yeah. form that people can use. There'll be a new deposit model. If it turns out that, that Yukon carbonate-based metal is a thing, then we'll be putting together a deposit model that should describe that and help people understand what to look for if they go out. Um, and then all the data sets will be available um, for download for people who might want to go and do their own number crunching. I know some people like it when we put out the the full final product but other people like having the raw data to play with too so yeah we try and provide both so what's like the key characteristics again for prospectors and explorers out there to look for when they're hunting vein deposits in the yukon like you said it's yeah. just carbonate you're only going to see carbonate gang a lot of zinc gang. in the system yeah Love that word. a lot of zinc in the system a lot of lead so there's there's a lot of sphalerite and galena in there as well but there's okay. a lot of sulfur salts too what's sulfur salts uh sulfur salts are things like um tetrahedrite, tenatite, they have uh, more than just sulfur in the system, so it's not a simple sulfide mineral. Um, but there's a whole suite of them, and actually trying to, to say which ones you're looking for <laughs> is tricky right now, because they, they vary pretty quickly according to the temperatures and pressures yeah. that they're actually being formed at. Um, John's a geochemist. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you haven't been able to tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, frame everything that way. Um, so, and it's the association between those gang minerals and the sulf- sulfide and sulfur salt minerals. And the systematic progression, where you see it in the Southwest Pacific, you get a pretty predictable progression from high temperature carbonates through to low temperature carbonates. So high temperature carbonates being like? Sort of calcite end member, calcite. and then you go through manganese and magnesium, and then the far end, the low temperature, you get iron carbonates, so siderates like and things. Anchorite. Some anchorite, yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, but... High temperature uh, calcite, low temperature. Again, there's, that's a wrinkle at Clasa that's an interesting one that we're, we're thinking about looking at, is that there are some discrepancies there between between the zonation um, that's observed at Plaza that you would predict if it was a true carbonate-based metal model. But that might be explicable by a number of different things that could have affected the deposit either during its formation or later. Okay. But again, we're right at the beginning of this this study, so it's it's hard to say what right now. That's interesting. Mm. Well, thank you so much, John, no for chatting to us about that. Whoa.
Welcome back, everybody. I'd just like to thank Leslie and John once again for taking the opportunity to sit down and chat uh, at the GSC's 175th uh, anniversary celebration. Uh, it was a really fun time. As mentioned, we will have a bunch, uh, a couple other supplementary pieces uh, from the GSC's uh, 175th, uh, including, as mentioned, a YouTube video with uh, uh, subdivision head uh, Steve Irwin, which should be up on Monday morning, uh, wherein Leslie and him get into a little bit of the uh, really cool backstories about uh, the GSC, including stuff like uh, prospecting on horseback and uh, the new technologies that are coming to bear and, and helping the GSC map Canada better geologically. So that should be coming up uh, whilst I'm on the plane, probably I'll, I'll predate that post so that uh, you'll have that video on Monday morning, uh, as well as this podcast. So that'll be great. Um, but yeah, so uh, it, it's coming to uh, a close here, the show, but uh, I just wanted to once again, touch a little bit on the Canadian Mining Symposium. It's going to be really exciting. Uh, we will be uh, recording the podcast next week, um, right there at the show. So I'm hoping to pull aside some of the uh, major panelists and some of the guests and hopefully get just an absolute boatload of audio for everybody and, and maybe some video too but we're gonna try to get as much content out of the symposium as possible and i'll be i'll be releasing that subsequently probably over the next month i'm assuming it's going to be an absolute ton of stuff um, but one of the things i wanted to talk about before we departed was uh, a little bit about my roundtable um, or panel, if you if you will. Um, and one of the things we're going to be talking about, obviously, is we're talking about uses of cash. Um, and uh, so I'll be uh, presenting a few questions to the panelists, and, and they obviously have an extremely large amount of experience dealing with all sorts of capital markets and M&A things. But one of the things we are definitely going to be talking about is the recent uh, movement by a lot of majors, including Goldcorp, Newmont, Barrick, etc., South 32, we just mentioned with Arizona Mining, uh, making equity investments in juniors or developers. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that. One of the things uh, that's uh, rather prominent on our webpage right now is uh, a discussion from our, our PwC TNM roundtable on the pros and cons of the quote-unquote farm team. I like that terminology, by the way. And that's really what we're talking about when we talk about uh, equity investments by large companies in earlier stage companies to sort of position themselves for potential growth long term. Um, and so that'll be a topic that we'll talk about uh, during the panel as well as a, a, a plethora of other things, uh, including everything from dividends to share buybacks. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, responsible development and how to uh, how to structure certain debt facilities so that uh, your balance sheet always looks like it's in good condition, or I shouldn't say looks like, is in good condition. Um, but it'll be a really good, uh, good panel, I think, and I'm excited to uh, moderate that. I'm actually just taking a few notes on my cue cards right now uh, for questions to ask some of our panelists. Um, but please do look forward to that. Uh, I'll have an absolute, uh, as noted, uh, truckload of content coming back from the symposium that I'm going to have to cut through and do post-production on, but it's going to be really exciting stuff. Uh, and uh, well, on the subject, please do follow us on Facebook, like us on, or like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, uh, check out our YouTube account. There will be a new video up there on Monday morning uh, and do rate this podcast on iTunes because that helps us out a ton. Uh, and this has been Matt Keevil with the Northern Miner Podcast. I am signing off, packing my bags, and I'll see you in London. <laughs>